If you look at our raw material buy, just in very rough numbers, about half of that is rubber. Of that rubber, roughly half is natural rubber. It all comes from a single species of tree called Havea brasiliensis. It's grown primarily in Southeast Asia. That makes tires to a large degree an agricultural product. The other half of the, the rubber that we use is synthetic. It's made through modern chemical operations, starting with petrochemical feedstocks and being crafted into you know a whole host of varieties that are tailored towards different applications. And it's really one of the tools that we rely on to deliver Dantatsu and differentiated product. That is Bill Nayura, Director of Sustainable Materials and Circular Economy at Bridgestone Americas, and one of our guides today for a science lesson about the most vital resource for our business at Bridgestone. Hi there, I'm Keith Cauley, and this is Thrive, a Bridgestone Americas podcast exploring our company through compelling conversations with teammates across our organization. The things most of us know about tires are they're black and round and made of rubber, but it quickly gets very complex and very scientific after that. That's why we have very smart people like Dave Deerig here to help us out. Dave runs our agro operations in Arizona, where Bridgestone is working to grow a shrub called Waiuli that could become the first domestic supply of natural rubber in North America. But before we talk to Dave, let's start with Bill. He'll paint the picture of why a domestic supply project is so important in the tire industry and what the future may hold beyond natural rubber as we work to identify and test other materials that could help drive further innovation and sustainability in tires in the future. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, we are joined by Bill Nayura, who is Director of Sustainable Materials and Circular Economy here at Bridgestone Americas. And he is a person with a lot of insight to a lot of really cool, I think, scientific alternative idea uh, projects that is really exploring the future of where Bridgestone is going in a lot of different areas. Uh, Bill, thanks for taking a few minutes to, to join us today. Thanks, Keith. Yeah, we're going to get into a lot of sustainable material focus, but I have a, a initial curiosity maybe on the circular economy part of your role. Could you provide maybe a brief uh, description or summary of what that entails? Yeah, so circular economy really sort of starts with the concept of recycling, but recycling a product back into itself. So from tire to tire, whether we're talking about tire to rubber or taking an end-of-life tire and bringing it back to, to raw material. Yeah. And then, so sustainable materials connects with that in a really good way. Um, and I think we're trying maybe to explore what are some of those sustainable materials, but I guess in your world, where do those things connect and what is maybe the overall focus of your day-to-day -day role if you were to, to give a person a lay of the land in Bill's world? Yep. So I'm part of the technical organization, but really I'm sort of positioned on where that technology intersects with our with our business and the uh, you know the ability to identify technologies, find partners, develop partnerships, and then ultimately through our procurement group uh, procure materials that uh, are sustainable or develop technologies that allow end of life tires to be built back into tires again. Yeah. How did you start into this space? Were you in a different role within normal maybe tire or rubber manufacturing or research, and then this became a passion to pursue in the more exploratory space? Well, my background is in, in polymer science or material science. Uh, I've been at 
Bridgetown 28 years in four <laughs> locations. Uh, I did I did start as a research scientist in Akron working with materials. You know, I've worked in other things like suspension system integration. I you know, did work on our recall in the year 2000. I've had some business leadership roles in, in running our automotive air spring business unit when it was located in Indianapolis. Did some business planning work in Nashville and most recently have... Uh, now, actually, maybe not so recently, but starting in 2011, transitioned uh, into back into the technical world, building out our infrastructure in, in Arizona, focused on Wyuli rubber, and then as you know, those facilities, teams, and technology matured, expanding the role of sustainability to the work that I'm doing now. Yeah. I mean, 2011 is recent. Time flies when you're focusing on the future, right? And you're, you're building it out in front of us. So uh, the sustainability aspect is a very major focus for, for Bridgestone among uh, a lot of priorities, but certainly one that we are leaning heavily into moving forward in, these, in this vision for the future. A lot of that stems from the current environment of maybe where we source natural rubber. And I know a little bit enough to ask probably dumb questions of people like you, but uh, can you explain the environment of natural rubber and really uh, why uh, we have this focus on maybe sustainable alternatives and diversifying our resources there? Yeah, sure. Uh, maybe stepping back a bit and looking at the materials that we use, if you look at our raw material buy, just in very rough numbers, about half of that is rubber. So, you know, that makes sense as a, as a tire and rubber company. Of that rubber, roughly half is natural rubber. It all comes from a single species of tree called Hevea brasiliensis. It's grown primarily in Southeast Asia. You know, that just as a sort of an odd factoid or a different lens to look at it, that makes tires to a large degree an agricultural product. The other half of the, the rubber that we use is synthetic. As the name implies, it's made through modern chemical operations starting with petrochemical feedstocks and then being crafted into, you know, a whole host of varieties that are tailored towards different applications. And it's really one of the tools that we rely on to deliver Dantatsu and differentiated product, especially in the passenger light truck and TBR space. And it depends on, in my understanding anyway, the type of tire and the, the performance attributes and its use, uh, the mixture, the balance, I guess, of natural versus synthetic in any mix. But to the degree that synthetic rubber is great, and we still have obviously very important needs for it and a lot of investment in that science, but it still really hasn't been able to truly replicate everything about natural rubber. Is that correct? And natural will continue to be incredibly vital to us moving forward? Yeah, it, it, it does. I think it boils down to the unfortunate fact that Mother Nature is sometimes a better chemist than we are, especially <laughs> when, it, when it comes to uniformity. So, you know, a little bit of technical speak, but natural rubber is 100% cis-1,4 polyisoprene. You know, that means that the, the monomers, which are the building blocks that make up a polymer, are each connected to the next one in exactly the same way, geometrically, exactly the same way every time. And that uniformity really brings a benefit in strength and durability. If you can think of, you know, a polymer in a tire when it's not stressed, existing like a bowl of spaghetti or a extension cord in your garage, it's all coiled up and random. And when you apply a load, 
you know, whether it's the spaghetti strands, if you stretch them apart or the extension cord, the strands become aligned with each other. They get, you know, in line and they pack nicely. And as they get closer together, the uniformity of that molecule allows it to form little crystals at the point of alignment. And that crystallization really brings a benefit. It's extra reinforcement above and beyond the the carbon black or silica that we add as, as reinforcing agents. And the beauty is, is that that extra reinforcement happens when you stress it. So it's happening exactly where it's required and exactly when it's required. You know, we've obviously really since the dawn of modern polymer science in the 40s have tried to replicate that. And we can make, you know, high 90 some percent regularity, but it's really not good enough to, to deliver that performance at the, at the same level that the, that the natural product can. Yeah. So I, I guess that does more explain that initial question that I, I laid out a little too early, but it would seem if natural rubber will continue to be so important and necessary, and it seems to all be coming from one place, that could, that could potentially cause an issue for us in the future. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, an issue in many ways. So, yeah, I mean, it is our single largest raw material buy. So, really, this is sort of a, a supply security play for us. And security from what? Um, you know, I think easiest to talk about is disease. You know, these are trees that are grown as clonal monocultures. Diseases exist. So, if you're growing a plantation of trees, uh, a disease that can't be controlled can, you know, run through that plantation quickly and... and uh, and cause problems. And the, the tree is Hevea brasiliensis. It's native to Brazil, yet Southeast Asia makes most of the world's natural rubber. And it's simply because the, the diseases are parasites to the tree that are native in Brazil where they just moved the tree to a different place of the world. So we're playing this game of not transporting diseases across the Pacific. And this is a lot of, you know, reason why when you travel internationally, you have that little check mark on immigration paperwork that says, I have or have not been on a farm or in contact with animals or soils for the last X days. I mean, there's real reasons why we don't want to transport uh, pathogens across the world. So, you know, disease is one. It's a crop that's grown in a concentrated geographic area. So, you know, climate change in the mid to long term is, is certainly a risk. Local supply and demand balance, when local tire producers grow or the local population has a higher demand for, for rubber, they're certainly closer to the source than we are in North America. Disasters or, you know, even things like regional politics or war. As a North American producer, we have to remember that there is no domestic source of, of natural rubber, and that's sort of the, one of the nice storylines around Waiule. Yeah, that's what I was going to evolve to next was this idea of diversifying our, I guess, our sourcing of natural rubber, maybe from a few different areas. One is geographically, where else can we get rubber from different plants and uh, growth? But then also, are there other materials that can mimic rubber and I, the idea of these alternative materials to rubber? We talk about resins and things that go into air-free that we're seeing become more and more uh, just a, a world of exploration for future technology. But I guess let's start with Waiuli, as you just mentioned, which seems to be that opportunity to diversify geographically into a domestic supply in North America, yes? 
Yep, and I think the, the, the long-term view is that diversification really happens in, in two dimensions that are correlated. One is to diversify across different plant species or diversify across biology, and then that different biology brings different climates into play. So, I mean, long-term, if you looked at tropical climates in Southeast Asia producing Hevea like they are now, adding Waiuli in arid regions, and then maybe longer term, like Russian dandelions in more temperate regions, you know, you've got, uh, you've got a much larger supply base that is more resilient, you know, to the things that we talked about, disease, climate, uh, et, et cetera. But and maybe to, to the second part of your question, uh, long-term view, I, I don't think it's, a, it's around resins. So elastomers and, and rubbers are, 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 are categorically different, but you know, the question that I ask myself is that we, we see that these plants have the ability to make rubber and it's a, it's a metabolic process that exists across many species of plants. Unfortunately, we don't fully understand it, but, you know, as we do, I don't see a reason why, why we can't take that genetics and through a genetic modification process, place it into you know something like a yeast or a bacteria or, or or some other microbe so that essentially in the end we're fermenting these these macromolecules rather than relying on a host like a plant to do that so yeah take a reactor feed it sugar have some microbe make that that molecule directly well it's just more of these natural wonders of, of mother nature and science that you're going to make your kimchi in one jug and we'll make rubber in the next one that sounds fantastic absolutely <laughs> well I, I guess as we explore that you know are there are there other ways when we talk about mother nature and the science behind the uniformity of natural rubber are there other resources in the world that have ideas of exploration in terms of opportunities to think about in the future just out of nature that are somewhat like rubber in some degree? Looking to the future, I think we really look at maintaining that you know, balance and opportunity that comes both with natural products as well as with synthetic rubbers. And maybe I'll talk more on the synthetic side. And from two perspectives, you know, one is that you know, we have you know, sort of a unique skill set and historical demonstrated ability to, to really tune those synthetic rubbers, whether that means functionalizing the ends of the, the molecule to interact with fillers like silica or carbon black or creating more stiff portions of the backbone of the molecule versus more flexible parts and using those as tools to really balance properties, especially in passenger tires. And that's, you know, that's something that we have teams focused on doing every day and doing that successfully. But to sustainability, I don't see a reason that we can't use the building blocks of those monomers from sustainable sources rather than petrochemical-based sources. You know, So whether they come from sugar building blocks, whether they're fermented, or even we're looking at technologies, and this is coming back to the, the first question you asked about what, is, what does circular mean to take end-of-life tires, break them down into sort of fundamental molecules that then we can rebuild these monomers that we use to make synthetic tires. So there's a lot of exciting chemistry that is technically viable. There's challenges of, of harnessing it at industrial scale and making it economically viable. And we've got plays 
and sort of stretch projects like that and probably can't talk in, in more detail about that right now. That's all right. That's a good tease for the future when this stuff comes to fruition, right? But I think a good place to end our time together is on maybe one of those areas that has been a stretch project in recent years and is now kind of coming to fruition, which is actually completely different from maybe some of the stuff we're talking about in in resourcing is tires made entirely of steel, wool, and metal that will go on a lunar rover on the moon. We're coming out of uh, Bridgestone, Japan, and, and some of the exciting announcements of the last year. What are your thoughts or what's your perspective on the moon tire and the makeup of all of that? Well, as a, a material scientist, I, I think what we've pitched there is exactly the right solution. And just like we develop tires for OEMs today and are looking how to make better tires for, you know, EVs as opposed to internal combustion vehicles, you got to look at the environment and the, you know, and the, and, and the use case for that tire. And it, in the moon, I think it's all about temperature. So <laughs> you, you did give me a hint that this question might be coming. So I did <laughs> Google this. So if moon's surface temperature plus 260 to minus 280F, if I'm re- remembering correctly. and I think we all would have believed if you just had that off the top of your head, but thank you yeah. for being transparent on that, Bill. <laughs> so at the, at, at the top end, our tires melt, so that's probably not the desirable outcome. And let's do a science lesson on the low end. So minus 280F is way below the glass transition temperature of any rubber that we use. And glass transition temperature, not everybody knows, but we've all experienced. So if, you, know, you, you think of rubber as being rubbery, so it's resilient. You push on it and it pushes back, and you can do that over and over again. But if you've ever been chewing chewing gum, which is also rubber, and you're doing it when you have an ice cube in your mouth, it sort of becomes brittle and can crack. And, you know, for for tires, you know, that might be minus 50, minus 60F. So that minus 280 really drives, you know, the need for different materials. And I think the the metal, the steel wool is uh, exactly the right choice. There you go. To, to the moon and, and beyond, uh, it's just a, an exciting thing to consider. We talk about Mother Nature and, and the natural environment, and I know I've read in at least a little, couple excerpts about the design of the tire, not just the materials, but a lot of biomimicry, I, I believe they call it, with uh, with animals in nature and how the, the the tactile pads interact with surfaces, and there's some of that that goes into the design of the, the lunar tire as well, and just all kinds of fascinating science uh, from the world to explore. Well, Bill, thank you so much for the time today and for helping us get a glimpse, I guess, on where we're going and uh, for, for sharing a little behind the scenes on this, uh, this world of science and fascination for many. Well, thanks so much. So while tires on the moon may not need rubber, we still very much need it here. And as Bill outlines, we need help from Mother Nature to help get that recipe right. And Mother Nature may need a little help from us to protect the natural rubber supply that she's already cooking up. That takes us to Eloy, Arizona, where Dave Dierick is trying to do just that by diversifying our sourcing of natural rubber through alternative plants and geography. It's time for you to meet Waiuli, an unassuming desert shrub that happens to produce natural rubber. What's ultimately been a decades-long experiment for the tire industry has seen recent breakthroughs and acceleration thanks to our investments here recently at Bridgestone. And Dave has had a front row seat to the entire journey. 
Let's dive in. We are joined today by Dave Dierig, and he is the section manager of agro operations at our Waiuli farm in Eloy, Arizona. Uh, excited to talk to him about uh, something outside of tire and product. We're going to get down to the science coming out of the ground uh, and talk a little bit about Waiuli and our efforts out in the southwestern deserts of the United States. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah, and you've got, I think, a lot of interesting perspective and knowledge, a completely different area maybe of the Bridgestone business uh, for, for us to learn a little bit about today. Um, and so as we dive into it, I think we'd like to start, if you could set the scene of your work, your role in kind of these agro sciences, and then kind of the layout or, or kind of the role the facility that you work at plays in this larger ecosystem of Bridgestone. I think it'd be easier if I start with what the facilities we have a 300 acre research farm kind of in the middle of nowhere it's space between phoenix and tucson in a little town called eloy so we have these offices lab space greenhouses uh, and then fields where we grow wayuli and these fields are really set up in a more research design so that we can have different scenarios with our irrigation or with our fertilizer, things like that, that we want to test in these separate square fields of the farm. So that's what our facility is like. And then we have a team that works on the agronomy, breathing improvement, someone that builds equipment and then we do sampling harvesting seed collection all the things that you would expect on on a research farm so it's a farm and lab kind of all rolled into one as this has kind of evolved i'm assuming a little bit over the last several years where did this all start and kind of how did we discover or initially think about waiuli well you're right it didn't happen overnight um <laughs> Waiuli has had many lives, <laughs> and it really started back as far as World War II, um, and that's really where it got the most major attention was during that time period. So there were tire companies like Firestone uh, that worked with the government, and it produced rubber here in Arizona during this, it was called the Emergency Rubber Project. Um, and so that went on during the wartime, and then it ended after the war. But then in the 1970s, during the oil embargo, it gets picked up again by the government. So the government supplied a bunch more funding. They built this demonstration processing plant on some tribal land here in Arizona. And that went on all through the 70s and 80s. And then that ended when they finally got the processing plant built and they picked a variety that the tribe was going to plant. Turned out that the variety that they picked was really a low rubber producing plant. It was less than 1%. And so that really caused the whole thing to just fail. And so that, that 
journey ended there. <laughs> Not meeting the KPIs, a very low yield in that exactly. return, yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah, something they should have tested before, <laughs> but it didn't happen. So anyway, in 2012, the CEO at that time asked Bill Nyora to come up with a plan for a Waiuli project. So this was how Bridgestone entered Again, I mean, since Bridgestone, Firestone were involved in the other two major times when Waiulu was being tested, but those were all government-led endeavors. So this was the first time that a major tire company like Bridgestone was leading the effort instead of just being funded and directed by the government. So Bill started the project in 2012. Um, I joined in 2014. And on the ag side, we put together a team and, you know, started with just the basics of what needed to be done. And that included, we didn't know how to direct seed it before. We had to transplant everything. That was kind of the current state of knowledge at that time. And so we worked out the direct seeding part, and that enabled us to be able to plant large fields of it and be able to test it on growers' fields and have bigger experiments than what we were ever able to do before this. So... That project just evolved over the past, you know, almost 10 years now. And I would say we're just coming to the end of this proof of concept phase. So we're now in a final feasibility phase of deployment, I would say. Yeah. Where did your, just a curiosity background, like you were brought in after Bill kind of stood up the project internally. What is your history that we came to you and said, we want you to come help lead this project? Did you work on similar types of plants or types of research endeavors previously? Yeah, I did. Um, Most of my career was with the Department of Agriculture. I worked for Agriculture Research Service as a research scientist. I did my PhD with the University of Arizona, and that was on Waiuli. And then my career with USDA was with Waiuli was one of my crops that I worked with. And then um, and from 2009 to 2014, before joining Bridgestone, I was the director of the Gene Bank. Uh, it's actually the largest gene bank in the world that resides in Fort Collins, Colorado. So yeah, I had plenty of experience with Waiuli and this was a like a perfect job for me. Why Waiuli then in terms of how we are looking at this proof of concept? What makes this shrub uh, so viable as an option to pursue here? Well, I would say that the most important thing is that Waiuli would allow us to have a domestic source of natural rubber. We don't have a natural rubber industry in the U.S. Everything is grown in Southeast Asia. Uh, So this would allow Bridgestone to have more control over our supply. You know, it's our most important natural feedstock that we have. And so to be able to have that control would be really beneficial to us. 
we've proven that we can grow it in scale. Uh, we can grow it without any hand labor. So fully mechanized process that we can do it. And it's also a really good ecological fit. It's low water requirement. It has all these great desert characteristics that fit into this kind of environment. So it's really um, for the way agriculture is changing in the Southwest with dwindling water resources. Waiuli is really a great crop and benefits the environment in that way. Yeah. You talked about when it was first in previous projects, you know, less than 1% or a very minuscule amount of, of yield of rubber coming out of that. Over time, whether it's us or others, how have we been able to get more rubber out of it? Has that come down to the, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not familiar with all the right vocabulary, the genome science, and are we testing things at that more, you know, molecular level to engineer the crops in a certain way? Or how did we develop it and evolve it to do more. And I guess my secondary question related to that is, are there other things we've discovered that it can help provide besides just rubber? For one thing, there are varieties that already existed that are in the public domain that that have higher rubber content. Um, without getting too much in the weeds sure. about the reproduction of... That's a good pun there, Dave. I like that. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, Waiuli reproduces by something called apomixis, and that means that it produces a clone of itself through the seed. Normally, when we think of a clone, we think of taking a branch and growing it from a branch to make a clone of the mother plant. But with Waiuli, you could actually take the seed and plant that. And because of the way it reproduces, it doesn't cross-pollinate. It just takes the seed, and that becomes a clone of what the maternal plant is. But there's a small percentage that don't reproduce this way, and they're referred to as diploids. And so these diploids sexually reproduce, and nobody's really worked with these sexual reproducing varieties of Waiuli yet. And, and these are the ones that really have the most potential to get us where we want to go, to get up to maybe 10% or 12% rubber content. So that's what our focus is in our breeding program, is to work with this special subset of varieties and make better plants from them. And in doing this research, we've found that secondary question, are there, are there additional things beyond rubber that we've also looked at for use of the plant if we're you know, helping produce it at such a larger volume? Yes, that's one of the great things about Waiuli and probably an advantage over Havea rubber that where we now get our rubber source from is that it's a multi-product crop. And so besides the rubber um, it also contains these compounds that we'll call resins. Uh, so that's these mix of compounds that contain terpenes and other compounds that are really 
beneficial that would definitely have their own market once we commercialize the plant. So the resins could be used. Uh, they have a lot of great qualities to them, for one thing. There's termite resistance in them. Uh, that's been tested already, and so you could use the resins for building product that would make uh, termite resistance. Um, they could also be used as a natural pesticide by doing certain fractionations to the resins. And then there's also the bagasse, which is what, after we extract the rubber, we extract the resin, what's left is the bagasse, so this woody material that has a really high BTU value that could be used in biofuels, for one thing. And so is the plant itself covered, like, so to speak, in a pesticide? Like we don't have to worry about pests or insects kind of being a danger or a threat to the crop? Yeah, that's a good point because really in all the time that we've been working on this crop, We've never had to spray a pesticide on it, and we've planted hundreds of acres, but the only time that we need a pesticide is when we plant it, and so the seed germinates, and before it forms its true leaves, so before it puts on these leaf hairs that protect it, before it gets all the right components in the leaf, it's vulnerable to insects at that point. So just at that early stage before the true leaves come on, do you need to apply any insecticides? Yeah, interesting. And so the uh, my understanding is the rubber we extract from Waiuli is the same kind of performance and attributes and characteristics as the natural rubber we get from Havea rubber. And what have we made with it, or I guess what have we tested with it maybe to this point to get to this comfortable proof of concept? Exactly the same molecule. You know, it's cis 1,4 polyisoprene that we get from either the rubber tree that grows in the Southeast Asia or the plant that we're testing, Waiuli. So Waiuli natural rubber, but because of the proteins that surround it, uh, they're a little bit different. Uh, so that can cause different performance characteristics. So in some cases, the uh, Waiuli rubber might be a little bit better. In some cases, the uh, Havea rubber might be a little better. So we've we've done, I think, four tire testings so far. Uh, the tire builds and tire testings, we tested it on light truck tires. Um, we've tested it on tractor trailer tires like the steer tire for them so that's going on right now and there's some you know some things that Waiuli that make it better than Havea does yeah now it sounds I mean it obviously all sounds positive and like we're trending in a great direction we, we've talked about this proof of concept I guess what now are the challenges that we we have left to tackle right to take it maybe to that next stage gate of larger production and commercialization and the like what is what's the next obstacle to go through um, I would say that for one thing we just on the ag side we need more experience on regular growers fields over the past 
you know, eight years we've been working with a few growers, but we need more experience on different types of farms. So we know just what we're going to be getting into, you know, what kind of unknowns will we be facing? You know, we'll learn a lot by having growers to work with. And also they need experience. This is a totally different kind of crop than they've ever worked with. They're used to growing crops like cotton or alfalfa. These are like one season types of crops where Waiuli is totally different in that it's planted with a really small seed. Uh, so they need to know how to get it established. And then once it's planted, it's in the ground for up to six years. So we, we would harvest it after two years and then we would allow it to regrow and then harvest again after two more years, allow it to regrow and then do a final harvest. So it's like having a perennial crop, like a think of a fruit tree crop instead of your corn that you would be growing. Yeah. And just probably a mind shift for a lot of farmers in general. You know, they've yeah. used their land for a certain purpose, and this is a very different, <laughs> very different yeah. purpose and and uh, livelihood to rally around. But yeah, true. So those are the those are maybe some obstacles. But I think to end, we, we obviously want to look at the the optimism and the future that is included in this. And um, what do we see? I, I, we're not going to hold you to it, uh, but like, what do you see as the timeline forward uh, and the potential opportunity here? I think you mentioned, you know potentially 10% of our natural rubber supply could come from this down the road. But what is this timeline of reality to having maybe a tire on my car made from Waiuli rubber look like? Well, I think we could really be in production by sometime in the 2020s. So it's not really that far off. We have a little bit more work to do. Um, we have to scale up our seed collection to be able to get you know, 20,000 acres planted by the, you know, toward the end of this decade. Uh, that's going to take some work. We need the right equipment to be able to harvest the seed. So we have somebody working on that. But potentially, I think we could see a plant opening in the not too distant future. And then from there, the next step, this would probably be like a quarter size of a what a full-scale factory would be. And so after that line is opened and we see everything's running smoothly, we see that we have the variety that we want, um, we're understanding more about the processing part and the extraction part, that full plant would be open. And then from there, we would be looking at other locations across the the Southwest to be able to open up more factories similar to this. That's what we envision is that we would have a number of these factories spread out across the Southwest, wherever we have the best environments and that are going to be able to sustain the type of farming that we need for Waiuli. There you go. 
the roadmap forward. Well, uh, we appreciated the trip, uh, you know, down in the weeds, but maybe down in the shrubs for this, uh, this conversation. But Dave, fascinating stuff. We thank you for taking the time and we look very much forward to kind of seeing this all uh, play out in the future ahead. So we, we appreciate you taking the time to share it with us. Great. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Now, we won't be testing you on your ability to describe or pronounce cis-1,4 polyisoprene or even dispel Wyuli, which, by the way, starts with a silent G and looks like it would be pronounced Guayul. But hopefully this has helped offer an interesting peek at the incredible science that our chemists and engineers grapple with every day as we try to drive sustainability and innovation forward into the future. As always, we remind you to share your thoughts about this and other episodes of the podcast by rating, reviewing, subscribing, or following wherever it is you like to listen. Or feel free to connect via email. Tell us how we're doing, where you're listening, and what you're learning. You can send us a note at thrivepodcast at bfusa.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Keith Cauley, telling you to keep on keeping on. And remember that at Bridgestone, today, tomorrow, together, we thrive. Be good, everybody. Thank you.